0: Good morning, Midland Free. Hey, my name is Pastor Jeremy. I'm delighted to have you here to worship with us this morning. I'm the preaching pastor here. We have several pastors, and they all do a great job. I have the privilege of being up here. Uh, this morning, I brought a board game with me. Would you all like to play? Yeah? Okay. This game is entitled Guess Who? Are you familiar with this one? Okay, if you're not, I'll explain it. Uh, It's a new game that I learned rather recently. And it works like this. Basically, there are three rows of eight, making 24. Exactly right. Good, you're awake. And what it contains is a series of different faces. You know, there's people who are bald, mustaches, beard, black hair, yellow hair, red hair, whatever. And what you do is this. Is you draw a card... And you have uh, one of those faces on the card. And then you take that card and you stick it right here and you look at that face. You remember yours and what you're trying to do, the way you win, is by guessing the face of your opponent. Your opponent also has a set and a card as well. And so it's sort of a question and answer, deductive reasoning or whatever sort of game where you say, okay, does your person have any hair? And they'll say, no. Okay, no offense. All right, and so some of the faces will go down, 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 and you'll say, okay, hmm, does your person have black hair? If they say no, you go, okay. Mm -hmm. And some more of the faces go down. And the faster you can go through these, more quickly you can come to, a conclusion and therefore identify the right person and thus win the game. This is the game of guess who. Okay? Alright. The idea is basically what you want to do is match the, the identity of the character to the face. In other words, you want to make sure that it matches. Today in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-6, through 6, you're going to hear the exact same thing. You're going to hear the Apostle Paul say, hey, when it comes to knowing the real deal, the genuine article, the truth from the false, the real from the fakes, you want to absolutely be 100% sure that you make sure those claims match what is written in Scripture. You absolutely must make sure That it matches. The theme for today is make sure that it matches because the validity of any message depends upon how it compares to Christ. The validity of any message, anywhere, on any grounds, depends entirely upon how it compares to Christ. This is what was happening in the uh, first century world. In John's setting, we'll have a map here up on the screen and we'll take a quick look at it. Uh, what's happened is uh, the, the apostles have gone out on some missionary journeys. This is the Apostle Paul's first and second missionary journey. and You see a bunch of little dots there in some cities that you probably recognize like Philippi, Thessalonica, um, Corinth like Corinthians, Ephesus like Ephesians and some others. And what happens is the apostle has gone around and he's done a bunch of evangelism and there's been conversions and people have come to Christ and then he goes back home, so he's kind of a traveling or a itinerant evangelist or church planter. But then what's happened is the seed has been planted and the, and the roots have began to form, but that tender little shoot is um, very vulnerable. And so I'm switching metaphors now at this point. But what what that's going to do is it's going to leave open sort of the the door for follow-up. Let me give you another example and see if this uh, hits home a little bit. Let's say, for example, you're going on a mission trip to Uganda. And you're going into northern Uganda, and there's a lot of people there, and there's even some tribals who haven't ever seen uh, Caucasians in their entire life. And you go into these groups, and at first you experience a little bit of resistance because what's happened is the witch doctors have told the children that if you ever see a white person run because they want to eat you, and the children will be afraid. And then gradually you establish rapport and you build a relationship, and you do evangelism. Maybe perhaps you bring in the Jesus film because you can't communicate um, verbally, and so you show them up on a screen, hey, this is the guy we worship This is the person we adore, and this is what he did. So watch this. This It's going to be really cool. And people watch it, and they're overwhelmed, and they get converted. And then you go home. And then what happens? Well, the witch doctors come back. And they say, you remember those uh, white people that just came in? They showed you another god, and that's really cool. But just add that to your pantheon, or add that to your other god, to make sure you offer a sacrifice or oblation to him. Cut open the chicken, pull apart the innards, divine the spirits, and this can all work itself out and come together and be a part of our great and grand pagan animistic religion. This is what we'll do. And this, in a very similar way, is what you see happening in 1 John. You see, the apostle has gone around and he's planted churches and he's done evangelism and there's been conversions. And now there's all these new young converts and what's happening essentially is the vultures are swirling or the wolves are circling and they're seeing and watching. And then the apostle leaves and they can swoop in on their prey. And that's the apostle when he begins to hear about this, he's he's concerned and he knows exactly what's going to happen. And so he warns them. For example, like Luke does in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30. And he says, hey, watch out, guys, watch out. For I know that after my departure, there's a slide here, I think, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Watch out. Guys, watch out because the wolves are coming and it doesn't matter if they are well-dressed, good-looking, articulate, educated, affluent, influential people. In the end, they're out to lead you astray. Watch out. Watch out. Paul goes on in 1 Timothy and says a very similar warning in chapter 4 uh, beginning in verse 1. And you're going to see this in chapter 4, verse 1 and following of John as well, is that, look, there are a number of spirits out there. There's no question about that, but the real question is, is which one are they? Are they the good spirit or the bad spirit? For indeed, there are deceitful spirits, and some of these are no less than the teachings of Demons. And the way they promulgate themselves is through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So in other words, the people who are coming to your door or the people who are on your TV or the people who are on your radio or the people who are even being sold in the Christian bookstore, these people might in fact be liars. They could be Antichrist. They could be so deceived that in fact demons are working through them to lead you astray. And sometimes the most heinous and horrible of heresies are not those which are blatant and obvious, but instead the ones that are subtle and just slipped in under the radar. And this, my friends, I think is the greatest challenge for the New Testament church here in North America. Because if you go over to Uganda, you know, it becomes pretty clear. You're like, that's a witch doctor, right? Bad. We know that. But if you're in the United States and you got, you know, Christian TV channels. And yet you watch who's on here and you compare their doctrine to that of scripture and you scratch your head and say, whoa, what in the world is going on? And you watch and you see these people who are promoting a prosperity based gospel or a false view of the Trinity all of a sudden become very popular, become very influential. Their books are selling and they're sitting on the tables of some very, very mature and godly Christian people. And it's not the blatant, obvious heresy of witch doctors, but instead the subtle deceit of demons in teachers like this. So today in 1 John, I'm hoping to help you with some of that because the Apostle is going to lay out a test for us. He's going to say, this is how you know. Do you want to know whether it's true or false, fake, or for real. This is it. Here's the test by which you will govern all things and be able to discern truth from error. This is how you know. Make sure it matches. 1 John 4, beginning in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, feel free to follow along. The words are going to be up on the screen or you can watch in your electronic device or whatever way suits you. But here they are, six or seven verses in the first chapter, or sorry, the beginning in the fourth chapter of 1 John. 1 John says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They, however, are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us, the apostles. Whoever is not from God does not listen to the apostles. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. The way I'm going to move this text forward for today, if you're taking notes, is in three uh, basic movements, three simple points. Very similar to last week. Last week it was. Does anybody remember? (laughs) Three C's. Very good. Thank you. And the first C was. Who? Cain, and the second C was Christ, and the third C was the Christian, exactly right. This week, what we're going to do is have three as well, and it's the command, the test, and the encouragement. So, the the command, the test, and the encouragement. The command is basically to test, that's verse 1, and then the test you'll see in verse 2, and the encouragement in verses 4 through 6. So, you have three Three movements today as well. The command, the test, and the encouragement. Let's begin by looking at verse 1. This is the command. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Two imperatives in this verse are do not believe and test. They kind of go together. Don't listen to everything you hear. Check it out. Make sure that it's for real. Now I have a friend in this congregation, I don't see him sitting in this service, perhaps he'll be in the second, but his job is that of a toxicologist at Dow, and I looked on his LinkedIn page, and that's a little bit tricky to actually decipher, so I sent him a message and was like, what is it you do? And he explained to me, he said, basically I tried it, I'm the guy who makes sure stuff doesn't get poisoned. Think Flint, right? You... What he said technically is to determine the dose that makes the poison, you know, because a certain little bit is not so bad, but at what point does what, you know, happen where biological molecular things change? And he was explaining all that, and basically it's really interesting because he's a nice guy. I mean, you would never know necessarily just by interacting with it, he's like one of these brilliant scientist types, he's actually really friendly and really outgoing and kind of jovial and... And a lot of fun to be around. But in reality, his job is to be a bit nosy and to look into things and test them to see if they are good or not. And the reason I point that out about his personality is this is because sometimes as Christians, um, we're a little bit averse to uh, what I would call the spiritual gift of discernment. We typically latch on to that phrase where Jesus says, don't judge. And therefore, we want to step back and say, whoa, no, no, no I can't. I can't judge. But in reality, in just a couple of chapters later, after Jesus says that, he also says, don't throw your pearls to the swine, judge rightly, make a right judgment. So the balance is Jesus is not telling you to close your mind and don't think about anything. He's telling you to discern. He's just telling you not to be so rude to other people. And that's the case with this toxicologist. You know, he is a really nice guy, and he does his job well, and I think all of us would want him to do his job well. None of us want to drink poison, right? We do not want to be poisoned. We depend upon him to do his job really well, and for doing his job well, we wouldn't say that he is judgmental, nor would we say that he is rude or a hater or anything else. But instead, we would say we appreciate him for protecting us. This is the desire of the apostle for us in the church as well. If we want to grow in our faith, then we need to discern, we need to be aware of false teachings that try to slip in and poison us. And by doing so, we're not being hateful, judgmental, or anything else. We're just being a toxicologist. And in fact, if you look at this Uh, passage, what it says is that you all are to test the spirits. In other words, this job is not reserved for pastors or theologians or people who wear fancy hats or gowns or have big letters behind their names. This is for every single Christian. When you are taught something, you are to say, how does that line up or match with Scripture? If nothing else, And all that happens on Sunday morning is you scratch your head and say, I'm not sure what Pastor Jeremy said. And you go home and you check the Bible verses. Then I feel like I've done a good job. Because that has motivated or caused you to get into the Word. And that is how you grow. So here, the Apostle Paul is making clear to the people, Hey, your job is that of a toxologist. I want you to test and approve the spirits to see where they come from. Are they poisonous? Or not. The test, test the spirits. So then how do we do that? Okay, you've just told me that uh, false spirits are going to come and you've told me it's my job to test them and see if they line up uh, with scripture. Well, how do I do that? The answer is this. The first clause in verse two says, here's how you know every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is has come in the flesh is from God now what's the deal I want to, I want to pull out two phrases the first really quick first of all confess when we think of confess what this means here is to pledge your allegiance this is not this is not, not like okay, I admit, but this is instead to say yes, I pledge my allegiance to so in other words yes there are demons in scripture that identify Jesus Christ and say you are the only begotten Son of the living God, what are you doing? And Jesus says, go jump in the pigs and get out of here. You know That was not a confession. That was just realizing who he was. But the confession here called for is a pledge of allegiance. It's staking your claims with saying, I am with this person. Like what you would do or see in baptism. So here is what he calls for. He says, first of all, they have to confess their allegiance to Jesus the Christ the Messiah and that he has come in the flesh here is the key phrase that the apostle john is going to use for these people in the new testament setting that they're in in the flesh now why is that why does it matter i mean we as new testament believers think yeah he came in the flesh he is jesus right But the reality is this, in their setting, they had this false doctrine or false teaching creeping in that said that Jesus, the person, was just a spirit or an apparition. These other false teachers came in and said, yeah, 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 he was really cool. He did the miracles, we admit that, but he wasn't fully human. And what the apostle is going to emphasize is, yeah, in order for you to be saved, in order for you to go to heaven... In order for him to be the perfect sacrifice who shed his blood on the cross, he actually has to be fully human. And that is totally and completely significant because if not, there is no bridge between humanity and deity. Because Christ is fully God and fully man, then he can perfectly fill the gap. But if he wasn't both, then there would be a gap on one side or the other. He has to be 100% God and 100% man all at the same time in order for him to be effectively our Savior. And so what this phrase does then is it sort of hymns that idea in. The Apostle says, look, it is essential that you believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now this does a number of things. If you're taking notes, here they are. There are three things that this requires, okay? This is... This is what in the flesh does for you. First of all, it assumes his full deity. Secondly, it requires his full humanity. And thirdly, it makes possible his full atonement. So fully God, fully man, and then the full atonement. Now, how does this require the full deity? Well, the idea is that He has come. In other words, from where? Jesus Christ, the Apostle John, is assuming that he has come because he always has been. In fact, if you pursue his other letters, for example, the Gospel of John... In verse 1, and then again in verse 14, he spells it out like this. He says, In the beginning, in the beginning, like before the beginnings, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And it's such a beautiful statement because the idea of was basically means always was. He never began. There was no inception. There was no beginning. He just was. And the idea of with means that He was distinct. When you're with someone, you're separate or set apart from them. So He was God, and yet He was with God at the same time. Well, how does that happen? Only in the Trinity. One God, three persons. Fully God, yet the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and He was God. He was in the beginning. Now, what happens at some point in time is what we call the incarnation. That eternal deity, that being, that spirit, all of a sudden added to his deity, perfect humanity. That's verse 14 of John. And it says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father Full of grace and truth. So, in short form, when John says here in chapter 4 that he came in the flesh, it means that he always was, but at some point, from our limited temporal view, he did not exist in human form, he was just deity. But then he came from everlasting beginning, entered into time and space where we are, and took on flesh. And then, as a result, perfect deity and perfect humanity were added together forevermore. Jesus now and forevermore shall be the God-man. He is still fully God and fully man. And so, the first one, the first thing is it assumes his full deity. And the second, then, is to require his full humanity By putting them together, you have the perfect package that can assure God of justice and of mercy in one instance. So, the the false teachers are trying to deny the true humanity of Jesus. And the Apostle John is making making it clear that that is outside the bounds or the realms of Christian orthodoxy. Now, here's a little uh, shout-out to historical theology. I know we've been kind of digging in depth with the Trinity there for a little bit. But what happens is this, is you say, okay, that's them back then. Well, what about me now? Because, like, so what, right? But the reality is if someone comes and knocks on your door and they're part of a religious group or religious sect, you need to ask them the same questions that the Apostle is telling you his readers to ask as well. Because in other words, there's nothing new under the sun and the church has dealt effectively with all of these heresies long, long ago. And so even though it may have a new, you know, Illuminati or Da Vinci Code or, you know, side religion, whatever, the reality is all of these things have been effectively dealt with just under a different name. So for thousands of years, We've had creeds that have spelled out specifically what the Christian church, based on the Bible, believes on Jesus Christ. This is what is orthodox or real for us to believe. Now, in your life group questions, you'll see some of these. We'll flesh that out a little bit. I'm not going to do that today. I just want you to understand there's a value to Christian history, and it is not something to be taken lightly or made fun of. Sometimes what I hear people do is they say, oh, yeah, you know, that's all just heady stuff and it doesn't get to the heart. Or they might say things like, well, creeds, you know, whatever. They just create division. And Christ told us we all need to be one, so let's not worry about our doctrinal distinctives. Let's just throw doctrine to the wind and instead focus on Christ. And indeed, there are some churches that have done that. They've said, we are not going to have any creeds whatsoever. But you know what happens then? This is what happens. The gospel that is central becomes peripheral. And the things that are peripheral become gospel. When you don't spell it out, the order of the service or the liturgy or the routine or the special moments or whatever, if those, if those things that are peripheral, if those methods become central, then the message moves out. And what I'm telling you is that the message always remains the same even though the method changes. So regardless of order or style or liturgy or whatever, the gospel is still the same. So here's the short statement. When the, peripherals, when the gospel becomes peripheral, the peripherals become gospel. And that's not what we want. We want the gospel to be central. And that, my brothers and sisters, is what, in fact, unifies the church. And so, in other words, it's not the creeds that create disunity, but the creeds, in fact, create unity. And the reason is, is because the creeds circle around the person of Jesus Christ. Said like this from one commentator, he says, Behind the creed is a person And it is to this person, Jesus Christ, that we pledge or owe our allegiance. We're pledging allegiance to Jesus, but then when people come in and say, well, we believe in Jesus too, then we have to say, "Whoa, whoa, what do you mean you believe in Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Who's the Jesus that you believe and who's the Jesus that I believe? And that's the nature of the creed. Because note this, the litmus test for the validity of any message is how it compares or depends on Christ. So, theology then is very helpful because here's one more slide, and this spells it out even more so, that because the Christian church finds its unity around the person of Christ. So to break with that unity is to break with the faith and split from the church community. So it's not saying that Technical jargon or terminology or big fancy words is the key issue. It's not that. But the distinguishing characteristics which these things define of the person to whom one is committed. In other words, it all comes down to Christ. Who do you say that I am? When you answer that rightly, you show clearly which side you're on. Therefore, as this slide says, it is Christ who unifies his church. And without him we have no unity. And with him we have a unity that no human being dare try to destroy. That is the tie that binds us together. It's Jesus, our Lord and Savior, fully God, fully man, eternal I am. Amen? Amen. Amen. So the command, just reviewing then, the command is this, that you test the spirits. When someone makes a claim, says, I have a word from the Lord. I've got a message from God. How do you know? Well, you test them. And the test is, how does this compare to Christ? Do they fully affirm the biblical, orthodox, apostolic teachings of Jesus? Why do I use the word apostolic? Because of this, look, in the first century New Testament, just like in Uganda, you know, there's a traveling message and a traveling messenger. And then they leave. Where we're at now, we have all of those messages compiled in one. We have the Bible. We have the New Testament. And so consequently, we've got this greatly advantageous position where we can check all of those teachings against the apostolic or the written by the apostles, truth. But in the New Testament, what's happening is these letters are circulating. They don't have all the Bible put together yet. And consequently, you know, Paul, in order to disciple his converts, he does two things. He writes them letters, and then after he writes them letters, he sends emissaries like Timothy or Silas. So guess what the demons do? The same thing. They write false letters and they send false messengers. And there's all kinds of um, uh, literature from that New Testament period about other teachings apart from Christ. And the same is true today. You know, we're going to try to communicate truth to you. And I'm standing here in the pulpit doing so. But I promise you there are other people in the pulpit who even preach way better than I that aren't communicating truth. And you need to listen to those messages. You need to compare how they line up with Scripture. And you need to discern, is this the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, or is this Spirit another one? Test. Test the message. So then, here's the encouragement. The command is to test it. The question is, how do they conform? And the encouragement is this. Little children, you are from God. You yourselves are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In other words, there are two different spirits, if you will, at war against one another. There is a spiritual reality behind everything. It's not to say that there, you know, we deny the physical reality, but it's to understand that there are things going on that we don't see. Or fully comprehend. And so in your life what happens then is you hear different voices. You hear, for example, the spirit of worry. You hear the spirit of doubt. You hear the spirit of fear. You hear the spirit of frustration. You hear and feel the spirit of anger, of lust, of discontentment, and of greed. And what you need to understand very clearly is that that is the wrong voice. That is not the Holy Spirit, but instead those are the demonic. And you need to be very clear with those voices when they come and tempt and try to draw you away and say, hey, look, get away from me, devil, because he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. The Spirit that God has placed in my life is more powerful than you, and I am relying on him to deliver me from your evil schemes. I know the shepherd, and I know his voice, and that is not it. The shepherd is good, and he knows his sheep, and the Father knows him. He is so good that he lays down his life for his sheep. And so when those voices crop up inside your head, whether it's merger talk or relationship or court case or parenting or retirement or you know, medical issues or whatever, you need to take control of the moment, test the spirit and see, is this from God or is this from the world? How does this line up with the character and person of Christ? Is this something Jesus would be telling me right now? Or would he be saying, hey, don't be afraid. Trust in me. I've got you covered. I've got your back. It's okay. It is finished. You're safe. You're well. And I'm coming back to take you where I am. That's a very different message. Discern the spirits. Test and see from whence they come. Therefore, when someone appears at your door or appears on your TV, or is even played on your Christian music station. You know what? I did some research this week, and I'm not naming names. But oh my goodness. Wow. I mean, there are some big names that that deny the Trinity. Let me give you not the names of the persons, but let me give you the um, heretical teaching name of. One is called Oneness, or Jesus' Name Only. If you find someone associated with this, run, run. They believe that Jesus is the manifestation of God. Not a distinct, independent person, part of the Godhead, but instead He's just the way God is showing up. So too with the Spirit. They have confused the nature of the Trinity and combined those persons together so that they are just different manifestations. Oneness is another one, of course, Prosperity Gospel is one as well. These are in in big-name churches and big-name preachers and on our radio stations and bookstores. So, what am I asking? Basically this. When someone comes to you with a teaching, you open it up. You say, okay, what is it? Is your Jesus the same one as mine? Is He... Fully God? Well, you know, he is God, but at some point he became God because even though he was with God, that means he was in the mind of God, but he had not actually come into being yet. Not that guy. Well, is your Jesus fully human? Well, you know, he was a really, really important figure, but for him to be human means that he would have to be sinful. So he couldn't be all of us. He was more like God indwelling a body, but that body was just a casing. Well, is your Jesus, you know, and you can go on and on and on. You can ask, is he... Fully God in lots of different ways. Was he omnipresent? Was he all knowing? Was he everywhere at all times? And if the answer to any of those questions are no, the cards go down. And eventually, you discern pretty quickly who's on the right team. And you pull that guy out and you go, oh, yeah, there he is. That's the one Jesus. Fully God, fully man. Our Savior and Lord. To whom we pledge our allegiance. Father, we're thankful for your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. There truly is no one else like him. He is utterly unique, different in every way. Fully God and fully man, the rubric for all things. Lord, as we look at our lives, may we line up with him. As we listen to teachers, Lord, may we discern whether they are from Him or not. Lord, for our attitudes, for our behaviors, for everything that there is, God, we pray that it would truly line up with Your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen.